All right, Acts chapter 4. <laughs> if you're new with us, we're working our way through the book of Acts. This is kind of our normal practice of what we do. And uh, so we're in Acts chapter 4 today, and next week we'll be in Acts chapter 4 and so on. So it's kind of how we do it, all right? Well, the, uh, the first three chapters of Acts have been about, really, we've seen the power and the resources given to the church by the Holy Spirit, okay? Uh, the church has been trained and the church has been sent out. They are taking risks. They're moving outside their comfort zones, outside of maybe their little church bubble, as it were. Their 120 men we saw in Acts 1 were kind of grouped together in a house, and they're out now, right? They're, they've broken out into the, in the public, in the community. Uh, they're growing, a growing community. Uh, people are coming to know Jesus on what's almost seemingly a daily basis. We'll see more today as a result of that. Uh, the church in Jerusalem, the first church to exist here in Jerusalem, is thriving. Uh, things are humming along really well. The, uh, the skies are blue, as it were, but in the distance, you can hear, as, uh, as Garth Brooks once put it, the thunder roll and the... Nice, right. Okay, no one got that. Um, I'm trying to contextualize to my audience, guys. I'm in Indiana now, not California, so I'm trying. I'm trying, right? Thank you, Thad. I appreciate that. Uh, but the thunder is rolling, okay, and the lightning is striking, right? There is, there is thunderclouds coming. Things seem great. Things seem wonderful. But starting here in chapter 4, things are going to get difficult, okay? Persecution, hostility, opposition is going to be mounted against them on a continual basis starting here in chapter 4. The water's about to get real choppy here. And we could say that if the, sort of the chief actor of Acts 1 through 3 was the Holy Spirit, we kind of see, as it were, Satan almost take the stage in chapters 4 through 6. All right, he's going to come up very explicitly in chapter 5, but we see him behind the scenes even here working in chapter 4. And we should expect this as followers of Jesus because if you remember back in the Gospels, we looked at Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, we find that when Jesus first began his public ministry, okay, when he declared his ministry, started working in public in that way, uh, immediately what happened? Satan popped up, right? We saw him uh, up his game, you know, Jesus in the desert, all of that happened. And that's exactly what's happening in the church. Same model's happening, right? Holy Spirit comes, they begin their public ministry, they're out in public, and then boom, you know, Satan ups his game. But how are they going to react? That's the question. How are they going to react when the, when the storm comes rolling in here, right? Things won't, won't get easier. Uh, they're going to get harder. And the more they strive to advance the mission of Jesus, the more they proclaim the love of Jesus, the more they serve their community like Jesus, the more hostility they are going to face. The security, the comfort, the pleasures of the world will begin to fade into the distant past as hostility and persecution and sorrow begin to make it to the forefront. But Jesus did prepare them for this. Okay? This shouldn't be shocking to them or to us that this is what it is. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He said this, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he told us this would happen. Matter of fact, uh, he said in Luke 14, 27, very simply, he said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That, again, I've told you many times, that bearing of a cross is not, you know, the pendant hanging on your necklace kind of thing or in your ears. That's, that, that, was a, that was a death and means of execution. And when he said, take up your cross and follow me, it was like, okay, things are going to get rough, okay? That's what, that's what that meant. Things are not going to be easy. Later on, in the, after Acts is written and Acts, Acts is done, we find these New Testament, we call them epistles, 
okay? And these are letters written to local churches in different geographical areas. And we begin to find in those, even later in Acts, we see uh, the apostles begin to say that they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Then later, Paul would write, 2 Timothy 3, uh, to a church in Ephesus, to Timothy there, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter, who we will see in this text quite often, wrote a letter to churches, uh, multiple churches actually, First Peter 2.21, said, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Okay, so this is kind of a normal idea. Following Jesus is going to get hard. Some of you have not come to Jesus and may think that if you come to Jesus, life will just get great and easy. That's not necessarily the case. Jesus doesn't promise an easy life. He promises a good one. He promises hope. He promises life. He promises forgiveness. He promises a relationship, right? Uh, eternal life, all those promises, but never promises easy. And so we find that. But the disciples would follow Jesus, even though it wouldn't be easy. And they would, they would endure suffering, and it's why we're even here today. It's why we, we exist today, because they took those risks. They endured that suffering. But how did they do it? How did they endure such hostility and not quit? And the real answer to that is they had hope. They had hope. They had the hope of a living, a living, living. See here, I'm contextualizing to my audience, right? Living, a living. Um, they had the hope of a living and resurrected Jesus. Listen to too much country music. Um, they had the hope of a sovereign God who had commissioned them and promised to be with them. Remember what he said, to the end of the age and promised to one day return as they saw him go in Acts chapter 1. Was, uh, Charles, uh, Charles Simeon, who was a pastor over in England um, over in, in the 19th century, he, he spent there as a pastor in this one church for 50 years and they, they, they really didn't like him. <laughs> they kicked him out, long story. Real hard time uh, over there. A friend asked him how he surmounted the, the pressures, the persecutions, the, the, um, the, the judgments that were thrown at him. How did he endure through suffering? Here's how he put it. I love his imagery. He said, he said, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. He says, when I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the prickling of my legs. He said, let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head, speaking of Jesus, has surmounted all of his sufferings. He has triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. You see, compared to just, just prickling of the legs, Jesus has already done the hard work. Right? He's already gone through. He's already endured the cross. He already has gone through the grave and busted out the other side and resurrected and ascended and coming back. Right? He's done the work for us. Everything we're enduring is just prickling of the legs. But without this kind of hope, without this, um, this kind of hope suffering and turmoil persecution, honestly, they're pointless, they are to be feared, and they, they are to be resisted at all costs, right? Without hope, without this kind of hope, the world unravels. And we, we witnessed that, right, over these past 12, 14 months. We saw the world literally unravel before us, right, without hope. Um, in uh, P.D. James's novel, The Children of Men, if you ever read that, it was also a film made in that I thought was interesting. It was, it was actually written in 1992, and it was written to, to say what it would look like in England in 2021, very interesting, I didn't know that, hopefully he's not a prophet on what he wrote, but <laughs> he wrote about a very chaotic England in 2021, and in that England, he said, it was uh, in, the, in the book, uh, the women have been unable to give birth for 26 years, and the last generation of humans was called the Omega generation, the end, the final group, 
And as the, the book or the movie unfolds, you find that uh, with no future and no hope, everyone begins to look out for themselves. The world begins to, to unravel. It's an absolute chaos. War, um, abuse, murder, rampant. Everyone does what is, as Judges, the book of Judges says in the Bible, does what is right in their own eyes. Um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's truly hopeless. And they do everything they can to fight off despair and suffering, even at the cost of the lives of others. Just an, an, a, a chaotic world without hope. But these followers of Jesus didn't crumble under the pressures of suffering and persecution because they had hope. They didn't unravel. They didn't, they didn't retreat. <laughs> they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't, uh, didn't unravel in that way. They had a worldview that encompassed and even embraced suffering for the glory of God. And they, prepared, and they were prepared by Jesus. And hope carried them through. They had something greater and more valuable to live for than just their own lives. And so we who follow Jesus have the same hope today. And the church would grow under such hostility and persecution. And the message of Jesus would go forward to the far corners of the earth and reach as far as Brownsburg, Indiana, right? I mean, it would go all the way around the world. And it would be advanced. But the, understand this, the gospel would always go forward through suffering and persecution. That's always how it was advanced. If you think persecution doesn't happen today for people who follow Jesus, I would encourage you to look at it and realize outside of our little geographical area here that around the world more people have died for following Jesus in the 20th century, 21st century, sorry, than, than the, all the other centuries combined, right? There's a reason why the most thriving churches in the world are in China and Iran. Why? The persecution is pretty deep. It's pretty big, right? And you just see the church, just, the gospel just growing. And that's what happens in our text here. So let's look closely at the church's first experience with persecution and suffering. Let's learn how not just to endure, but how to make Jesus known through those times. And here's what we're going to look at, okay? We're going to look at the rise of persecution and suffering, the reason uh, for persecution and suffering, the rebuttal. We'll talk about the kind of ways in which they, uh, they show Jesus through that, and finally, the rejoicing in it, okay? So, number one, and yes, they do all start with an R. Sometimes I like to do that. It's kind of fun. All right, the rise of persecution and suffering. Verse one says, as they were speaking to the people, the priests, captain of the temple, Sadducees, came upon them. So, context. Peter's preaching the gospel to people. He's, uh, he's taken advantage of the large crowds that had gathered at the temple area because they had healed a, healed a man, as we saw from the reading, who's over 40 years old, been crippled his whole life, unable to walk. He's able to walk now. He's with Peter and John, and everybody's kind of gathering around and wondering what in the world is going on. And it's interesting that the, that the followers of Jesus are not, more, not much more than 3,000 or so. They had no political power. They had no influence. Its leaders were mainly fishermen, and yet Luke records here that the religious crowds begin to gather and show up. As a matter of fact, throughout the, the book of Acts, Luke's going to highlight, he's the writer, by the way, of the book of Acts, Luke is going to highlight 11 different groups or individuals that will oppose the church uh, and the message of Jesus, okay? So it's an ongoing theme. Now, who's this group that shows up? Uh, this group included, it says here, the captain of the temple. He had his little minions with, with him uh, who were in cahoots with uh, the high priests of Judaism who had arrested Jesus, okay? So you're going to find some redundancy between, if you know the scenes of Jesus' arrest, you're going to find some of the same people here. They were the, these guys, the captain and the high priest, were kind of the religious uh, conservatives of the day, we would say. And then there was also this group called the Sadducees. Uh, they arrive. Uh, they were very different. Um, they were... They were <laughs> They were sad, you see. Um, sorry, I just had to say that. I even put it in my notes to say that because that was funny. Um, 
But they were different. They were very different. They weren't the religious conservatives. They were the religious, we maybe label them religious liberals of the day, okay? Um, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They could have cared less about Jesus claiming to come from the dead or this message about Jesus coming from the dead. They just wanted to retain power. They were in cahoots with the Romans to kind of oversee and control what was happening in Jerusalem. So we got all of them. And then down, we go down to verses 5 and 6, and we find that they, they bring in the big guns here. They bring in this group called the Sanhedrin. Um, they were, they were kind of like Godfather meets Judge Judy, okay? They're kind of like they had the authority and the power to, to make judgments, and they also like worked behind the scenes and kind of making sure people obeyed and did what they needed to do. So they kind of had both those together, power, control, influence. So all this group is together, Okay. <laughs> And we end up with, in the scene here, we end up with two fishermen, okay, two fishermen who are being, who are being opposed by a, a host of religious people, probably over 100, when you consider the Sanhedrin, all these people, there's over 100 religious leaders taking on two fishermen, right? And here's the thing, that 100 group of religious people, you would never see them, matter of fact, you don't see them any other time together in the same room. They would never end up in the same room together. They would totally disagree on about everything, but especially when it came to religion or politics or even, um, even from the social standpoint. They were completely different groups of people, and yet they're united. United. What are they united against? Jesus <laughs> and this church and these guys, these fishermen who are preaching Jesus. And so we find the, these religious experts. It says here in the text that they came upon them. That's interesting language, the original language there. Greek is what this was written in originally, not English. And the original phrase literally means to stand over them quickly. So you get, you, get the, you get the image of intimidation, don't you? You imagine these two little fishermen with this 40-year-old guy who's been healed, who's probably doing jumping jacks right here, you know? And these hundred religious leaders says, come over top of them. And you just see them kind of almost standing over them in judgment, noses kind of in the air. Uh, that's kind of the scene that we see, kind of trying to flex their political muscle. Verse 2 says they were, I love this, they were greatly annoyed. They weren't just annoyed. <laughs> they, were, they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching, this is Peter and John, the people, and proclaiming to Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So you can almost picture the size, uh, the heckling coming from the religious leaders as Peter talks. They're like, you know, this guy, fisherman, um, what is he doing? Uh, they are, they are, they're rolling their eyes, disapproving. Um, you can see the, the, with the wag of their heads, making sure the crowds see their displeasure. That's very important to them, by the way. They're, we'll find out they're not really care about Peter and John as much as they care about the opinions of the people, right? They, that's what they care about. They were the, understand that they're in the temple area and the people, the common people of the day, form their opinions about life, God, society, culture, whatever. They form their opinions from these religious leaders, okay? So it's very important for them to win over the audience here. And so verse three, so they arrested them, right? We gotta shut these guys up. So they arrested them, put them in custody. Uh, it was already evening. So here we have, um, because the religious people had the people with badges with them, the captain of the temple, they arrested them. And it says here, put them in custody, would have thrown them into prison. So most likely we got Peter and we got John and we got this guy who was healed, all being thrown into prison. Now, and, uh, and despite shutting the mouths of the disciples here, uh, we find that the gospel goes out anyway. Verse 4 says about, the, heard the word, believed, number came to 5,000 people, right? This movement was growing out of control. They had to do something, or this Jesus movement was going to overtake them and swallow up all these other uneducated, gullible people in their opinion. So verse 5, 
next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. We find some other guys show up here as well, all the high priestly family. I mean, they're pulling all the big guns out here. And I imagine Peter and, and John that day, I wonder what they must have been thinking, what's going through their minds. They're sitting in prison, they're chained. Um, they're in a musty kind of prison cell. Uh, I'll call it a cell, but it really wasn't, it wasn't a three square meals with a TV and a weight room kind of prison. This was a hole in the ground, okay, what they were thrown into. It would be a prison, if you're familiar with Dark Knight Rises, it would be like what Bane found himself in at the beginning, okay? Big, deep hole, that's where they find themselves in this musty place. So what are these religious guys, right? Why, why are they so annoyed? At the heart of their frustration, and this is really important for us to get to, at the heart of their frustration is that the crowds, the crowds are going to Peter and John. The crowds are not going to them. Those, they are the, the religious leaders, they're the trained and the, the educated and the experienced. And it wasn't just that Peter and John were teaching. Again, that wasn't the issue. It says in the text they were teaching the people. The implication of the language is people were listening. And as we see in the text, people were responding, right? And people were believing what they were saying. They weren't interested in protecting the people from false teaching. They wanted their own accolades. This was their niche, right? This was their crowd, their soil for planting their religious doctrines. And it was that name again. Man, Jesus came around again that really set them off. They thought they'd gotten rid of him, right? They thought they got rid of him after the crowds followed their lead. This would have been the same group of people that would have chanted, hey, let's crucify Jesus, remember? And the crowds joined in with them. Same group of people are here. And they thought they got rid of him, but here he is again. They hear the name of Jesus again. So they're upset. Why are they mad at Jesus? Here's why they're mad at Jesus. If, if Jesus is alive, which is what's being proclaimed here, then they are going to be out of a job very soon. As we see, people are leaving the temple and they're following the church. If Jesus is alive, then all they've built their lives on, a self-made righteousness, was for nothing. If Jesus was alive, then grace trumps law-keeping. If Jesus is alive, then we find a radical transformation, and these people, they're, they're completely lost. Their moral and religious resumes were going to be rubbish. Everything they worked their whole lives for. Think about all the education, the experiences, the work that they had put in to build up this moral religious resume and if Jesus is alive, then that was, that was for nothing. Right? You have to, that's why it's hard for some of you to come to Jesus. You have to look back over your life. You have to embrace the vanity of your moral resume and trash it. You have to turn not just from your sin. This is so important for you to understand. If you've grown up in church especially or been around it for a while, to come to Jesus, you don't just turn from your sin. You've got to turn from your righteousness. You say, what do you mean? you got to turn from the very things that you have tried to use to give you leverage with God. The very good works and all the things you've done to try to make God, you know, okay, God, hopefully the good outweighs the bad kind of thing on the scales here and look how much good I've done and now you owe me because I've done some good things, make my life easier, whatever it, the thought is. you got to turn from that too. Whatever you use to justify yourself to God and others. You have to count it all worthless like a guy named Paul did. We're going to see in a couple chapters a guy named Saul. He's going to get a name change, okay? He's going to get, his name's going to change to Paul, and maybe you're familiar, if you're, if you, even if you're not very familiar with the Bible, maybe you've heard of Paul the Apostle, all right? His name's going to change from Saul to Paul. We'll see his experience later. Most likely, most commentators, historians believe that in this crowd of religious leaders, guess who's in that crowd right now? Saul. <laughs> He's part of this group. He was one of those religious leaders. 
He understood that as an extreme religious leader who had devoted himself to all things in theology of the Jewish faith and all the things he had poured himself into as, as, as a leader in that place, had to chuck all of it. Here's, what, here's his own like personal testimony. He said this, Philippians 3, verse 8, he wrote to a church in Philippi. He said, indeed, I count everything as loss. And prior to this, prior to this verse, he had listed off all the things he had accomplished. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Realize that every day that you wake up with, with wanting to lean on your own kind of self-righteousness, it's, it's, uh, as a, even as a follower of Jesus, it's like the deep default of the human heart. Martin Luther, way back in the 16th century, coined that phrase. He called it, religion is the deep default of the human heart. We just wake up going, okay, God, what, do you, what list do you want me to follow? What things can I do to make you love me more, accept me, forgive me, whatever it may be. It's like our heart resets every day to forget grace. Every day we forget grace, and we want to lean on ourselves. Um, we go throughout our days comparing ourselves to others, correcting others, selling ourselves to others while trying to prove ourselves and justify ourselves. These religious people are upset because justific of justification by faith alone instead of justification by works, justification by approval, justification by wealth, whatever it may be. Whatever they were using to make themselves feel right and okay and better, they had to chuck all that. And that, they didn't like that idea. You will never come to Jesus until you see that it isn't just the bad things that are keeping you from Jesus, but the good things that you do as well, those things that you lean on to keep you from faith. All right, number two, the reason. So as we see the rise, it's starting to, starting to happen. And here's, here's the, kind of some of the reasons. We've gotten to that a little bit already, but let's look at it again. Verse seven, a little bit more. When they had set, set them in the midst, they inquired by what power and by what name you did this. Okay, so they, they pull them out of prison, drag them out, sit Peter and John out in the middle of the floor, uh, I imagine these hundred so leaders forming like a semicircle, maybe like a pack of wolves are kind of surrounding them. There's Peter, John, and this one guy that's been healed. And, uh, and you can imagine they're just kind of looking at them in disgust, okay? I mean, these guys are in their, quote, prison clothes, and these religious leaders are decked out, right? I mean, they're shiny and clean and bells and whistles, everything else, right? They are, they are set to go. They look so much better than these two poor fishermen do and this poor little guy who's been, who's been healed as well. And so, um, and so they want to know how, how in the world this guy was healed. So verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rules of the people and elders. So here we have Peter begin to speak. And we see the Holy Spirit working, right? The Holy Spirit, as we have seen, is the one advancing the church. He's the one advancing the gospel. And he loves using common people, people who aren't necessarily the elite as the others were. And Jesus said this would happen. When they got in the middle of something like this, said in Acts 1.8 that he'd be with them. But he said also in the, in the Gospel of Luke, the same writer wrote Luke, wrote Acts, Jesus said this would happen. Listen to this. This is pretty prophetic. Look at this. Well, actually, this is prophetic. <laughs> Not pretty prophetic. Luke 21. He says, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. This is Jesus speaking to his followers. Delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. Okay, that happened. Check. You'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Check. And this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand and contradict. And that's exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is literally going to put them right into the situation that Jesus said he would do. So verse 9. 
Peter says, well, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. So he's speaking to this group, but he's looking behind them at the crowd, saying, now I want you guys all to hear me, make sure I'm very clear on this one, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, <laughs> whom God raised from the dead, by, by him this man is standing before you today. So Peter wants to make sure that there is no possibility that it was anyone other than Jesus who did this. And notice his quick deflection from himself. Think about how easily these guys could have taken credit for this, or at least partial credit. I mean, they were the kind of the vessels of which God used to heal this guy. They could have said that, and it would have been true in a way. How easy it would have been for them to maybe plead the fifth here. I'm, uh, I'm not going to incriminate myself, right? Or just answer just yes and no questions really easily. I mean, if Peter and John had a lawyer with them right now, he'd quit. Because <laughs> he'd be like, or she'd quit. Because it's like, really, guys, you're like, you're incriminating yourself. Stop talking here. But Peter and John say, we can't help it. We have to keep talking about Jesus. And there's also a huge assumption being made here in, this, in Peter's statement. Peter tells these guys that since Jesus is still healing people, he healed this guy, that means he's not dead. Right? He is alive, even though, as Peter says, you killed him. And so Peter says, you can't deny we have, we have this power from Jesus. Look at this guy. You know, it's, Again, show. He's probably doing jumping jacks here. This guy is good to go. His power is from Jesus, and he is healing today, and that means he is alive despite what you may have thought you did to him. So verse 11, Peter just he sticks a knife in, and now he twists a little bit. <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't kill him on the spot, by the way, but they didn't. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, okay? So here we find that he starts to highlight the work, not just the work of Jesus, but the work of these religious leaders. They are the builders in his statement here. And basically what Peter says is he goes, this is a statement from the Old Testament. If you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, this is a, this is a, a quote from, from the Old Testament. And so basically Peter knows his audience. He knows these guys know their Bibles inside and out. He says, you guys remember that analogy in the Old Testament about God building a, a building called his kingdom and that there was a cornerstone holding that all together? Peter goes, they probably go, yeah, we know about that story. And Peter goes, well, that's Jesus. And you guys pulled that stone out of your building. And that building that you built, guess what's happening to all your religious works and bricks that you put into play? It's all gonna fall down on top of you. <laughs> I mean, they, they thought, these religious leaders thought they were workers for God. They were building his kingdom by their law-keeping, by their teachings and religious observances, but they were building it on a wrong foundation. More accurately, they were building their lives on a wrong foundation. As the old hymn goes, right, all other ground is sinking sand. You are hardwired, my friends, to build, okay? You're hardwired to build. You can't help it. And I'm not talking about building buildings here. I'm talking about building a resume for your life. You're all building some kind of life, some kind of building by leaning on your own skills, your mind, your personality, your money, whatever it may be. And you can't help it. You can't help but build. Every person in this world is building some kind of resume trying to trump everyone else's, right? I remember some years ago when I was living in Los Angeles uh, when the movie Avatar uh, came out. And I was living in L.A., and it was like a big thing. I mean, it was like, I mean, the theaters were completely packed. People going to see it four or five, six different times. And I thought it was interesting that, that after the movie kind of was out for quite a while, that they, they had a, um, an article I read on this, that doctors were noting an uptick in patients coming in for depression in light of 
of, uh, of the movie. It was like Avatar depression. <laughs> you say, what, what was going on? They were so mesmerized by this other world and this other place that they, they left the theaters and went back to their lives and they were like, I want to live on Pandora. Like, I don't want to live, I don't want to live here where I'm at with my roommate or whatever. Like, I want to live somewhere else. Like, I want to live that life. And they just entered into this great depression that life couldn't be better than it was. And I, uh, this one writer for LA Times noted this, not a believer, but he, he said this, he said, in light of that issue, he said, humans are hardwired to believe in the transcendent. That transcendent can be divine or simply Kantian or a notion of something unknowable from mere experience. Either way, in the words of philosopher Will Herberg, man is homo religiosus, by nature religious. As much as he needs food to eat or air to breathe, he needs a faith for living. It's an interesting observation, right? They have to have something. They have to have some kind of faith. They have to build some kind of resume. Whether they do it consciously or unconsciously, you're all trying to do it. Every person around us is. So the question is, what are you building your life on? Right? Peter tells us there's only one foundation that's actually permanent and worth building on. Look at verse 12. There is salvation. There is foundation in some ways, you could say. There is salvation, no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter makes, just so you know, a very exclusive claim, okay? And he's not just making this up, right? He was taught this by Jesus. Jesus said something very similar about himself. John 14, 6, I am, Jesus said, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? It wasn't, there's no exception clauses there, no footnote, okay? It's only through him. And so Jesus is not some, what we find out here is Jesus is not some rabbi, some teacher, uh, some guru, whatever. He is God. And it's through him alone, not in addition to him, that you can be saved, forgiven, be made right with God, be brought in a relationship with God, be freed from the bondage of your idols and find hope. So understand this. We were talking about this. We had a, a meeting this week and some ministry training classes I was doing this week, and we talked about this. And I told, told you guys who were in the class I was going to bring this up today. <laughs> but it, Jesus is not only what you need. What I'm trying to tell you here is, is actually what you want, even if you don't see that. You were created to be satisfied, and the thirst can only be quenched by Jesus. He is better than the best of ideas. He's better than the best of pleasures. He's better than the best of works or philanthropy or mercy can, we can do. He's better than the world. He's better than your friends. He's better than your iPhone. He's better than your Xbox. He's better than your job. He's better than your family. He's better than your spouse. He's better than your kids. He's better than anything. He just is. Some of the things you're like, well, that's not much. Not much to be better, I guess. But, but he is better than anything you treasure and think is best. And so we shouldn't be surprised that the Bible tells us that Satan's strategy actually is to blind us from that very value of Jesus with the value of other things. That's why we get so mesmerized by these things, okay? Listen, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In whose case the God of this world, being Satan, has blinded the minds of them believing so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They can't see. They're blinded to the value, the worth of Jesus, in that way. And that's his strategy, right? Enthrall us with gimmicks, make us easily pleased and satisfied with earthly pleasures and cause us to revel at, at our own accomplishments and not realizing that our foundation is absolutely cracking. We don't even realize. Here's the sad part about those apart from Jesus. You just don't realize what you're missing. They don't realize what they're missing. I, I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. I know, I know C.S. Lewis it comes up a lot, but he put it this way. We are half-hearted creatures. I love how he puts it. We're half-hearted. We're fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, 
when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And here's a statement. We, as human beings, as human race, are far too easily pleased. We're too easily pleased. That's the problem for you apart from Christ. It's, you're too easily pleased. You're, you're satisfied with, with the mud pies, as it were, when there's, a, when there's a voyage on sea is offered to you with unlimited amounts of food, but you've got your mud pies. You know, I know this is great. I just want to keep this. That's what he's saying. These religious leaders, with their proverbial mud pies, are taking out their dissatisfaction of what they have on Peter and John and this guy who was healed. That's why that's happening. Number three, rebuttal against persecution and suffering. So the gospel was so central to these guys' lives that even though people wouldn't agree with what they said, they couldn't deny who they were and what they had done. It's here we find, I call them, Two kind of rebuttals. We could use it uh, in theology. We call it apologetics, defense of the faith. Reasons for why the faith is genuine and real. The reason why the gospel is true as evidenced by how it has changed the lives of people. I'll give you two of them found here in Peter and John. The first is gospel. I'll call it gospel character. Verse 13 says that the religious leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated. Right? They were common men. They were astonished. And they recognized, look at this, isn't this good? They recognized that they had been with Jesus. They, they saw it. They were like, we're literally standing before Jesus again. Like, he, they're acting exactly the same. They're responding the same way. You say, what was that, what was the response? There's a combination here of boldness and conviction on one hand and humility and almost we call it self-deflection on the other, right? They're not taking credit for anything that they have done. I mean, they, they healed this guy. That's pretty spectacular, right? They're not taking credit for any of that, and yet they're extremely bold and extremely convicted about the truth of Jesus. And that made these religious leaders stand in awe. They kind of scratched their head. And they also saw that they were just plain, right? They were just common people. They had no education. This blew the religious leaders' minds. It just doesn't make any sense. All they knew in life was merit, earning, achieving equals privilege, honor, and position, right? That's, that's the formula. That's how you do it. That's the math of life. You do those things, you get honor, privilege, and position. These guys have done none of those things, and yet they've got something different here. This is why the gospel was so offensive to them, because grace is offensive. The gospel is, one of the, is, that, is that one's past record is never pristine, it is full of selfishness and pride and sin, and that therefore ordinary men and women can be saved and gifted by God for service. They can say and do things that are beyond their educational achievements or experience. The gospel had done something amazing in the lives of Peter and John, these two fishermen. It produced that humility and boldness, which was unheard of. All the religious crowd knew, right? This is what most people only know today. You're either fearful or you're prideful, based on your own self-assessment of your achievements of where you are in life, right? If you're doing well, right, I'm better than other people, there's a sense of pride. And all of a sudden you realize you're not quite shaping up, what do, you, what do you shift towards? Fear. Oh, no, I'm not quite matching up right now. I need to do better. Oh, I'm doing better. I'm better than you. Okay, I'm prideful, right? It just sways like a seesaw back and forth. Pride, pride and fear, pride and fear. These guys had neither of those things. They had humility, self-deflection, and extreme boldness and conviction. Like, how in the world do you have both of those things in one person? And that's what the gospel did. That's what it did. You get humility 
from the cross because you see, as you look at the cross, you see two stories going on there. You look at the cross, you see that because, because you see that you're more sinful than you ever dared think. Why? Because God himself, God, not an angel, someone God could have sent down, some prophet, some teacher, some good person died for you. He had to do it. That speaks pretty deeply to my flaws, right? It speaks pretty deeply to how far gone I was that God himself had to take my place. That gives you humility, right? But you also get boldness when you realize, you look at the same cross, you see the love of which God would, would go that far to reach me? He would go to that depth to reach me? Now, I'm more loved than I ever dreamed of, right? So I'm more sinful and broken and flawed than I ever thought possible, yet I'm more loved than I ever dreamed. And these two things come together in the cross, and it brings this humility and this boldness together, right? It's love there. You see it. The test of any religion is in what it produces, and the gospel of Jesus produces this humble boldness in people who will absolutely die for what they believe in, but get this, they'll also love those who don't believe what they believe with great humility and service. Number two, gospel neighboring. So we see this humility here. We also see this, this gospel, gospel neighboring. So gospel character, gospel neighboring. Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So it was not only gospel character. There was what I like to call, we've talked about this in the book of Acts, a gospel neighboring um, that caused their persecutors to be dumbfounded. You see, Christianity not only produces a character of humble boldness, but a movement of the heart that causes the followers of Jesus to have compassion and love for all people, despite creed, affiliation, tribe, or race, right? Completely transforms how they see people. We'll see this in the book of Acts in chapter 6. We'll see the church, the people, the followers of Jesus decide to take care of what in, what in that context is actually the unbelieving widows of their city, okay? Not just their own, but theirs, this resulted uh, in some of the priests getting upset. They got mad. Matter of fact, some of the priests get saved <laughs> because of what they do. Um, it was Christianity that boggled the minds of the Romans in the third century. And what I've told you in the history of how the church grew was because, because the church not only took care of their own people, they also took care of the, Ro the unbelieving Romans who were hurting, right, during the plague. It was mind-boggling to, like, why would they do this? You see, when you, when you see that your sin costs, what, what your sin costs God, and what love he showed, it melts you, it converts you, so that you don't look down your nose at people anymore. You don't size people up. You don't look at people outside of your tribe in that way, but rather you see, you see them eye to eye. That's what, what gospel-centered people look like. You see people differently, right? You don't size people up. You don't throw them into categories of, well, those are deserving of my care and those are undeserving of my care, right? You're like, no, we're all in the same boat here. Right? There's not, there's not, world's not broken up into good people, bad people. It's broken into repentant bad people and unrepentant bad people, right? That's, that's how it's broken up. Completely different change of how you view people. And we looked at this. You guys remember, if you were here, we went through the Gospel of Matthew with these almost the express intent of you seeing how Jesus saw people. So when we got to Acts, you would understand why the church acted the way they did. This is why in the passage it says they recognized them as being with Jesus. Why? Because they saw this 40-year-old man who was crippled at that door the way Jesus saw a 40-year-old man crippled at the door. Do you see that? That's why they recognized him. Oh, man, they, they've been with Jesus. We can see how they see people differently. That guy had sat there for 40 years, and no one, none of those religious leaders cared, cared at all. They didn't do anything. <laughs> the mission we are on is that of gospel proclaiming but also gospel neighboring. 
And it was this latter part that kept the world from disregarding what Christians had to proclaim in those early days. Let's look at the, the church in Acts. They are suffering sharp persecution, as we'll see going on here. Yet at the same time of, of having persecution, they're enjoying enormous um, popularity with the people. We see people being converted left and right. They are attractive and growing and yet hated and attacked. <laughs> and, and they'll be hated by both, both the conservatives of the day and hated by the liberals of the day. And I always say, you're doing something right. If you've got the dude in the suit and the dude in the dress united to hate you, that's probably something's going right there, right? That's what's happening. You may have missed that. That's okay. Or you may be actually offended by that. Okay. Um, but listen, here's how it works. If you have no person, let's get personal here. If you have no persecution for your faith, then you're probably being a coward. But if we face attacks, persecution, without being attractive, we're probably being jerks, right? That's kind of how it works. Harsh Christians will have persecution but not praise. Cowardly Christians will have praise but not persecution. The longer you walk with Jesus and the closer you walk with Jesus, you get both. There's a sense of attractiveness and there's a sense of hatred <laughs> all at the same time because it's exactly how people treated Jesus. Look at verse 15. When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. So they regroup here. <laughs> they say, what, what are we going to do with these guys? Uh, there are notable sign has been performed through them. It's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. So they realized they had nothing to say against these guys because their character and their work. They dismissed. They regrouped. <laughs> they're not wondering. They're probably trying to figure out motives here, right? Why did they care about this guy when no one else did? Why are they doing such good to people? What are they trying to leverage here? What's the, what's the, what, are they, what are they after? So, you know, they're trying to figure this out. But as we'll find out, they couldn't find an ulterior motive here. This was because the church didn't fit any category that they had, just like Jesus didn't fit any category they had. They loved people outside their tribe, and they believed and were willing to die for the gospel and for Jesus just as much. That's crazy. We need both of these. And it is a good question for us to answer because out of, out of those two elements, our history and even our, our conviction is we, are, we, we believe the Bible. We believe it is we believe it's inspired by God. We believe it is inerrant. We believe in God. We believe in the Trinity. We believe in the deity of Christ. We, we can go down the list. I mean, we are conservative to the T theologically, okay? We follow what the Bible has said and teaches. The other side of the coin is do we love people like that just as, just as passionately, do we care about the, the, not just the loss, but the hurting and broken around us and care for them like Jesus did just as much as we care about our theology and doctrine, right? And so it's a fair question to ask. And I heard one pastor ask this one time, and I thought it's always a good question to evaluate. And he said, if, if our church's doors closed today, would the community around us even take notice? Would they even notice that we closed? Would they come to us and say, look, we don't believe what you believe, but if you leave... We're going to suffer as a community. Matter of fact, we might have to raise taxes to cover the cost of the things that you're doing for people around us. Please don't leave. We don't believe what you believe, but you're having such an impact in our community. Please stay. Would that, would that be answered with that way? That's the kind of testimony we must have. As much as we believe and hold firm to doctrine and theology and truth, we also need to hold just as passionately to care, love, and compassion and mercy towards people outside of our tribe. Number four, rejoicing in persecution and suffering. Almost done here. Verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they're like, here's our plan. We can't figure out any ulterior motives. Let's just shut this thing down. So they charged them not to speak, teach at all in the name 
of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. Man, thank God that Peter and John didn't back down. Otherwise, it would have maybe set a trajectory for everyone else to do the same. And we wouldn't be here today. <laughs> it wouldn't be a church. It wouldn't be a Bible to us. And um, understand that while we, while we are to submit to authorities, and that is something throughout Scripture, Romans 13, and we'll look at it in a second, even 1 Peter says that as well. Even though the, those passages speak to that, there are times, and get this now, listen carefully to me, there are rare times, very rare times of what we, what we would call civil disobedience that is needed. Why? Because Jesus is the greater authority. And it always has to do, please listen, it always has to do with gospel proclamation, not just preferences we may have or dislikes we may have with authorities over us. Don't rip this verse out of context and apply it to things you don't like, okay? That's not what he's talking about. If it prevents you from preaching the gospel and talking to people about Jesus, he says, you know, Jesus trumps authorities. We're gonna talk about Jesus. That is what is being said. Remember, it's the same guy who said this, okay? Same guy who said, hey, we're gonna preach Jesus. You do what you want kind of thing. The same guy who said this is the same guy who wrote 1 Peter, who told us to honor the emperor, who at that exact same time was crucifying Christians and lighting them on fire, Okay, so same guy <laughs> saying the same thing. Hey, we, we're gonna submit to Jesus. We're gonna preach the gospel even if you tell us not to. So we're gonna disobey. And yet also the same guy who said, we are, I don't know why I'm doing like, I'm doing like Karate Kid here. I'm waxing on and waxing off. Sorry, my own, uh, my own visuals are getting, getting to me. Um, it's one of those mornings. Drew, this happens, buddy, just so you know, he's laughing at me one day. Okay, um, but anyway, so, so you, you, get, you get both of these elements. He's saying we're going we're gonna to disobey authorities, and yet we're also going to obey authorities, even if they crucify us and put us up on a stake and light us on fire, right? The same guy saying that, but it all has to do with the disobedience. It has to do with preaching the gospel, talking about Jesus, right? And this happens throughout history. We'll see another famous kind of disobedience that happened here before authorities was uh, Martin Luther. It's called the Reformation back in the 16th century. Uh, he said this, he stood before the council and told him to stop preaching justification by faith alone. He said, look, unless I'm convinced by proofs from scripture or by plain and clear reason and arguments, I can and will not retract. For it is neither safe nor wise to do anything against conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. He's like, bring it on, all right? Whatever you wanna do to me, do it, but I'm not gonna stop teaching about Jesus. Now I want you to notice the reason these guys keep going with the mission despite the difficulty. They keep going not because of moral obligation necessarily, it was because of joy. They were so overwhelmed with what they had seen in Jesus dying and rising again that they had to share. Like, we can't help it. <laughs> they couldn't keep their mouths shut. The gospel had changed their hearts and emotions, not just their wills and minds. They loved Jesus, and they wanted to, so they wanted to obey. And that's exactly what Jesus said in John 14, 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And what he means by that is not, make sure you read that verse correctly, not if you love me, okay, stop there, you know, do your stuff, and if you do enough stuff, you know, sorry, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, right? You're showing me by working, doing your stuff that you, that, that you love me. It's like, no, it's not that way. He's saying, look, if you love me, if you value me, if, if, if you rejoice in what I've done for you, then you know what's gonna happen as a result? You're gonna keep my commandments. It's gonna flow. It's gonna happen. Jesus is describing the effect of love, not the essence of love, this gives us insight into why more people don't carry out the mission of Jesus. They just don't love him enough. The gospel hasn't sunk in. 
Listen, Jesus is not interested in what you can offer him as much as he's interested in you seeing what he offered you by his death and rejoicing in that so that you, so you won't even have to think of serving or mission or offering. You just do it. There's a hymn called Come Ye Sinners. There's a line in that that goes this way. It says, let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Right? It's to feel your need of him. That's what he wants from you. <laughs> and then he'll transform your heart and you will obey. Right? That's what happens. Do you feel your need of him today? Do you want to obey him? Do you want to carry out his message? Do you want to love people as, as he loved you? If not, you're not going to be able to conjure that up on your own. You need to go back to the cross. You need to plead for brokenness. Taste and see the Lord is good and gracious. This makes Christianity impossible to do. You can get away for a while with duty-driven obedience, but eventually that's going to dry up. You need to stand and gaze at the cross. This is why every Sunday, every Sunday, and it's not old, <laughs> but every Sunday we get back to Jesus. We get back to the gospel. We get back to what Jesus has done. We get back to grace because that is what's going to transform us to follow Jesus as we leave this place. In the end, Peter and John are released. They're let go. It's most likely in the same court, by the way, that Jesus was judged and not released or let go, but sentenced to crucifixion. The only way you can be let go, the only way you can go free is because Jesus was bound, condemned, and crucified in your place. That is freedom, right? John 8, Jesus said this. He said, truly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free free indeed. As we go to take communion as followers of Jesus, we go to remember that grace. We go to remember that cross. We go to remember the suffering he endured through for us. Kind of going back to that Charles Simeon quote, right? The, the prickling of the legs, just a little bit. He's gone, he's surmounted, he's gone through the hedge. We just got to bear a prickling of the legs. We can endure suffering and we can make Jesus known through all of it because of the value and worth of what Jesus has done for us. So there's little cups there in the pew in front of you. There's bread and there's juice inside. We're going to take some quiet time here in a minute. If you're new with us, we just do a little bit of quiet time to reflect on what God has spoken to us through the scriptures. And we respond to God. We call it prayer. Don't make it too fancy. If you haven't never prayed before, it's just talk to God. That's what it is. You can talk quietly. You can talk in your mind. It's okay. Okay? If you don't know Jesus, this communion is not for you. We would love to answer any questions you may have. Uh, we welcome those. And I would love to help answer them and point you to Jesus the best we can. So when you're ready... Christian, you may take that bread and juice. It is, it is there. Jesus said, do it in remembrance of him. Remember his body and blood broken for us so that we can leave this place in remembering grace that's been given to us and our standing with God in grace so that we can be bold and humble at the same time in making Jesus known. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for um, this passage. It is, uh, it's convicting to see uh, Peter and John here um, as uh, no doubt they, were, they experienced fear, no doubt they were uncertain at times, and yet, God, at the end of the day, when it came down to it and they were asked to stop talking about you, they said, basically, do what you want. We're gonna keep talking. <laughs> um, God, they did it because of the value of you, not because they were threatened in some way or um, they were gonna be punished by you in some way if they didn't. They did it, not because they had to, but because they wanted to, because that's just how valuable you were and you are. To them. May God, you give us that same motivation, that same look at the cross that we see again, that we are more sinful than we ever thought possible, yet more loved than we ever dreamed. And let that move us, God.
to love people the way you love people, see them the way you saw them, and, let you, and make you known in Jesus' name. Amen.